When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Jay is on assignment this week, so I'm joined by Christy Grant Hart as a special guest host. We take things in a little bit different direction today, dedicating all of our articles to issues that compliance practitioners need to consider from the fallout from the Russian invasion of Ukraine. We take a look at a variety of angles, including corruption and anti-corruption, money laundering, the oligarchs, uh, fine art, protectionism, and corporate governance, all on This Week in FCPA. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. Welcome to This Week in FCPA, episode 293 for the week ending March 4, 2022, the Ukraine Hangs On edition. As Ukraine hangs on from the Russian invasion, Jay is on assignment this week, so our fan favorite Compliance Christy herself, yes, Christy Grant Hart, joins us this week as a special guest co-host to look at some of the week's top compliance and ethics stories from the impact of the Ukrainian crisis in this edition. So, Christy, first of all, welcome back. I am so pleased to be here, Tom. Thanks for having me. So what we're going to do this week is we are literally going to stay on that topic, and we picked uh, different articles from different angles to maybe look at and get you to think about some of the things that you might want to consider from the compliance perspective. And we're going to start with uh, a couple of articles that I wrote uh, and an article that Matt wrote, Matt Kelly, in uh, Radical Compliance, uh, and really just use that as a jumping off point to have a discussion about uh, what we think compliance professionals need to do. So I'm going to start off with, um, in Ukraine, uh, start with your employees. If you have employees there, make sure they're safe, make sure they've got uh, connections to communicate, make sure that they have uh, money, food, and support. If you can or need to get them out, do, including their families, um, Make sure they understand you have their back and the company will be there for them through this crisis. But that same um, rationale really applies to employees in Russia. It's not the Russian people that have attacked Ukraine. It's Vladimir Putin. And uh, many of us, I know, Christy, you have lived in Europe and uh, looked east in your compliance practice. And I have as well. Have have a lot of friends in both countries. And so we really need to, I think, think about um, Russia and our colleagues in Russia and what we can do, if anything, to support them. But beyond that, um, well, how are you going to do business going forward? Obviously, it's going to have huge disruptions on your supply chain. It's If you sell into those countries, you sell into Russia, I hope you're not doing that anymore. Uh, but if you sold into the Ukraine, you may not have a lot of buyers right now. So um, you need to assess the risks from your company. And, and in rereading these articles in preparation for this podcast, a couple of themes came to me, Christy. One was transparency. Two was risk and risk assessment. Mm-hmm. And three is provide support. So I guess maybe this is the, the big, broader overview. What do you, 
either did you see as general themes or what have you been counseling people uh, from the Spark Consulting angle on this issue? Uh, yeah, the number one thing I've said this week is call your sanctions counsel um, because we do consulting on process and not on specific sanctions issues. But um, it's just a lot of fear, a lot of fast moving pieces. And what do we do if, um, especially when it comes to things like systems and process and trying to figure out, you know, how to manage all of this. Um, and I do think that the people who have the biggest challenge are those with employees either in both Ukraine and Russia or one or the other. Um, you know, we we have friends, colleagues, um, people in our supply chain, as it were, that are in Russia that we're trying to figure out, okay, you know, we're paying through their American subsidiary. Is that okay? Like figuring all those things out is so challenging. Um, and, and it's just a really fast-moving time. It's, uh, it's hard stuff. So... Um Next, uh, we took a look at, or you're actually going to tell us about a really interesting article from Dick Casson uh, in the FCPA blog. What did you see in Dick's article? So it was really interesting, um, and I'm very curious about your opinion on it because I, I found myself wanting to argue with him. So I'm, I'm quite curious what you think about it. Um, so he wrote an article titled "Why Sanctions Are a Corruption Super Spreader," and the article notes the extraordinary sanctions that have been placed on Russia's financial systems, especially its inability to utilize the SWIFT banking system. So the coordinated sanctions from the UK, European Union, US, and Canada have basically created a financial blockade for Mr. Putin and his close allies. Um, in the article, he quotes Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen, who said that the sanctions will, quote, deliver swift and severe consequences to the Kremlin and significantly impair their ability to use Russian economy and financial system to further their malignant activity. So, Kassin basically strongly criticizes this action. Um, he states that it will unleash vast levels of corruption. Uh, he quotes numerous experts making his point that sanctions against financial systems essentially drive money underground. So his argument is that sanctions create the opportunity for people to use money laundering to move funds. They use third parties to move money in and out of the country. And for individuals, Kassin notes that sometimes people rally around those they feel are victims of unfair targeting. So he definitely convincingly quotes experts that say when sanctions are considered, people should also consider accounting for the increase in bribery risk and corruption. I mean, personally, I can't imagine a world in which countries like the U.S., U.K., Canada, and anyone in the European Union doesn't use financial weapons against this invading party, especially since money is so necessary so quickly in a scenario like this. Um, and while I think Kasson's arguments are sound and well thought out, the immediate benefit of choking off that money supply to a government engaged in an illegal war to me completely outweighs the corruption problem there. But I'd be very curious to know what you think of all of that. So, uh, first of all, Dick's new role as sort of um, writer at large for the FCPA compliance blog has, I think, really freed him up to to talk about some very controversial things that he, he really didn't talk about when he was the EIC. So kudos to Dick for even raising this. And Chrissy, um, so I have a deg history degree, and what actually I thought of was the American Revolution and the War of 1812. And the reason I thought of those was the then colony, first colonies and then the United States cut off trade with Britain. And the problem was, because trade was cut off, you could make a ton and a half of money smuggling. 
And so the smugglers smuggled. And um, in the New England region, um, there was not a lot of fervor for the War of 1812 because they didn't want to lose the trade with with um, England. And I think that's largely true of most companies in the United States. They're in business for a business reason. They're, they're not there for their health, and they're not there uh, for, for anything other than a, a business reason. And the Part of that was making money. They may have had collateral business reasons, but they were valid business reasons to be there. And so I think we've always had, when you levy sanctions, whether it be a trade blockade, whether it be economic sanctions, whether it be what we have done and really the the entire world has done or most of the world has done, um, I think there's always going to be people to to try to get around that. And if what I'm concerned about is, not so much that it will lead to corruption, but it may lead to just an explosion in cryptocurrency. Mm-hmm. And the Russians will have to do something, and they will respond. And they'll—I mean, Venezuela's still kicking, uh, and, and we've had the most crushing sanctions on them for at least five years now, and maybe longer, maybe even ten years. And they figure out a way to stay afloat. So Russia will figure out something, but. You you said, I think I counted three times in there, maybe it was just twice, we have to do something, and we can't not do something. We can't not punish um, uh, the, uh, the Russian economy for Putin's actions. So uh, I think there's going to be a response. Whether that response is corruption is that's where the penalty part of sanctions is so strong, because... I think many U.S. companies and EU companies will, uh, in sort of a patriotic pro-Ukrainian bend, not violate sanctions just because it's the right thing to do. But I think there'll be some companies that say, one, are we going to get caught? Answer, probably yes. And two, what's going to be the penalty? Somebody's going to make an example out of us. And so that's where I think that the sanctions part, the punishment part of sanctions for companies that violate sanctions, I think could be uh, a significant deterrent. So where I agree with Dick is that there will be ways both Russia tries to get around it and uh, other people try to get around it. Uh, I disagree that it is going to, it is going to lead to corruption. He's right there. But whether that corruption, uh, you know, we have to do something, and whether that corruption is significant enough to help the Russians uh, get through this, that's an open question. The I think we, we take up this topic later, but um, if not, the even my wife said to me this morning, well, what's going to happen to corporate governance if all of energy companies pull out of their joint ventures in Russia? And others have written about that, and and I think that's a valid concern is to the extent those Russian joint ventures were constrained by BP or Exxon or Halliburton or Schlumberger or whoever it was, um, they don't have that constraint anymore. And whether that means corruption expands outside Russia, once again, it's an open question to me, but um, kudos to Dick for raising this. And, uh, you know, the fact that we're talking about it and disagreeing, I think, is actually a, a good thing because it's raising awareness of it. Absolutely. So next up, we have an article, I think, by Jacqueline Jager. And um, this is um, one that everyone needs to be thinking about. Uh, Jacqueline Jager at Compliance Week, and that, of course, is supply chain. And 
Jacqueline really emphasized not the specific steps to take uh, that you should engage in, but emphasize risk, risk assessment, risk mitigation strategies, and an ongoing assessment literally on a day-by-day basis of what your, um, how your uh, supply chain is functioning during this time. Uh, she said there are four major areas of concern, commodity price increases and supply availability, export controls and sanctions, cyber security, collateral damage, and wider geopolitical instability. And um, the, the thing, though, Christy, in talking to people about um, ESG, many companies are now looking into their supply chains to see if there are any human rights issues, modern trafficking, uh, uh, or human trafficking, modern slavery issues, et cetera. And they're finding they've never looked at their supply chain. And certainly they've never looked five levels down at their supply chain. Uh, and they're finding that actually that even may be true on the sales side. They may, they certainly have looked at their sales agents and distributors, but what about sub-distributors? Uh, what about people who are reselling without them knowing who they are reselling to? Are they getting end-user certificates, those sorts of things? And so this may be an opportunity for many companies to actually improve their business efficiency and business process by assessing how far down, the, uh, not uh, how far down because they haven't looked down this chain, but it may give them an opportunity to see um, greater business efficiency and what may be the byword for the next five or 10 years, which is resiliency and business as usual in your uh, overall supply chain. So um, are, are any of your clients kind of coming to you on supply chain issues yet or is, or the, uh, is it the broader sanctions at this point? I mean, the biggest we've been hearing about supply chain certainly in the last two years, right? In the in the COVID environment, and this seems like an, an exacerbation of the same challenge. Um, I think that many of them really have focused on finding some redundancies to make sure that they know that there's a secondary supplier that they can turn to. Um, and I think those companies that have done that work are really quite grateful for that right now. If they're in an uh, environment where they can't get what they need, we have seen though a lot of the challenge. You know, two, three, four, le- five levels down though is that they don't have contractual rights to get that information. And frequently, we've seen second tier, in particular, suppliers basically say, "You have no right to ask me for all this information, or it's confidential in our contracts, etc., cetera, etc." Cetera. So we've seen so much pushback from trying to get down through that supply chain that unless you have a major, major company that has so much buying power that they can essentially force the issue, it it really can be tricky to get down to those sub layers. So I think that as it becomes more commonplace, as the disclosures become greater, particularly when we get more countries, um, obviously you've got the UK, California, which is not a country I know, but um, just about, and Australia. You guys think it is. I mean, we're the fifth largest (laughs) economy in the world. Uh, Pardon me, I'm now a Californian again. Um, But it's uh, it's it's profound just how much focus is on this, and I think that it will continue to be, and that that's a positive thing. The the integration of the need from an economic perspective uh, for resiliency and, and potentially having secondary suppliers of similar uh, things, as well as the modern slavery focus, as well as the ESG focus that brings that all into focus again, it's just a big, bright spotlight, and that's a positive thing. 
Christine, next up, we had a guest post on the Global Anti-Corruption blog, uh, also uh, one of our uh, more interesting blogs, I think, that mm. came from Matthew Murray. And he asked the question, did Putin invade Ukraine to expand state corruption? What did you see in that article? Oh, man, what an interesting point of view. So Murray is an adjunct professor at Columbia University, and he previously served as the U.S. Deputy Assistant Secretary of Commerce for Europe, the Middle East, and Africa, which I think puts this in a really interesting light. We had several different academic articles from professors this week, some of which were harder to read than others. <laughs> this one was was pretty easy, actually. Um, and his main contention is that Putin's decision to invade Ukraine is motivated by this desire to uh, deflect attention from all of the problems facing Russia domestically, especially mismanagement of the COVID-19 pandemic, but also the public's disgust with corruption surrounding Putin, his colleagues, and the oligarchs that control Russia's banking, oil, other industries. Um, so he notes that on the day the war began, imprisoned Russian anti-corruption activist and political opposition leader Alexei Navalny took the opportunity to, during his latest hearing, to literally state, quote, this war between Russia and Ukraine was unleashed to cover up the theft from Russian citizens and divert their attention from problems that exist inside the country, unquote. Um, and the remainder of the article tracks the outcome of the 2014 Revolution of Dignity at the Maiden. Um, and that was the Maiden revolution, uh, revolution started when Ukrainians took to the streets in Maiden in central Kiev to protest the then president's sudden decision to reverse the nation's course into joining the EU and engage in free trade with the world's largest economic bloc. Um, so he notes that the outcome of the revolution has been a steady march toward real democracy, um, including undermining the power of the oligarch class. And the author contends that Russia's discomfort with the thriving democracy right outside its borders created this impetus to shut down Ukraine uh, and to stop its progress toward a less corrupt society, essentially stopping the people in Russia from wanting to be on that side of the fence, really, in terms of democracy. Um, I think they're really interesting, and it really put the war in a different context, especially in terms of recent history. So, I mean, I think it's definitely worth the read. Uh, it it certainly was. Um, I don't. Um, I talk about wag the dog a lot, uh, but this just doesn't feel to me to be a wag the dog. Mm. So, so I don't know why he has gone to war against Ukraine, uh, but I don't think it's to. Um, uh, dis deflect attention from other areas. I think he's got such a stranglehold on uh, Russia that he doesn't need to do that. But uh, it certainly does put things uh, in a different light. Um, next up, we have an article from um, the Washington Post, and it, it's about the going after the oligarchs. And so um, I'm I really want to get your opinion on this, Chrissy, because on one um, on the one end, they are a part of Putin's uh, power. I'm not sure he has an inner circle anymore that he relies on. I think he just kind of thinks things up and does it, uh, surrounded by yes men. But these are multi-billionaires uh, who flaunt their wealth quite a bit. And this seems to me almost to be a caricature of uh, seizing yachts. And that's the, the biggest thing right now. If you're following Twitter, you almost get a, a hour by hour rundown of whose yachts are at risk now. And they're right now, <clears throat> several of them are in the Maldives because the Maldives have no extradition treaty and is losing a $135 million yacht um, 
First of all, you always have been a California girl. You never <laughs> were not a California girl. Even if you were living in London, you were a California girl. So um, the, the, those size yachts are in California. They're in Texas. They're in Florida. They're, they're all over the place. They're outside so, London. They frequently come into the London harbors. So um, I'm just not quite sure how much it really means to lose your big boat. Uh, but um, Biden talked about it in the State of the Union address. And uh, maybe it really does bother the um, oligarchs. But the monies they have invested literally across the world and, uh, you know, obviously the real estate market in New York, in London, mm-hmm. uh, are filled with oligarchs uh, really having driven prices astronomically up because they can uh, afford anything. But they do have significant cash outside of Russia. And if we can uh, get a hold of that or at least freeze it, I think that is uh, something that that is significant. Whether that puts pressure on Putin or not, I don't know. But if we can deny uh, however many oligarchs some $600 billion in assets, that's $600 billion that Putin can't use. So uh, I'm all in favor of that. Um, what kind of your thoughts are on going after the oligarchs? So I found it fascinating this week. The, they had some um, interesting articles in the Wall Street Journal about this topic and how many of them, of the oligarchs, have actually spoken out against the war and out against Putin's actions. And, and you know, maybe it's from a great love of democracy, but my best guess is that it's from a great love of not having your money frozen all around the world and not being able to use it. Um, and I think that it's actually a really powerful pro uh, our side, I suppose I would call it um, way of going, because I do think that there, that money is power. It's always been power. And whether or not Putin's listening, I think that ultimately, you know, when you've got a power class basically saying, cut this out, um, there have been you know, some commentators that think that they can end up with a, a soft coup over this um, and that the essentially money talks and that they can essentially ultimately have regime change or something like that based on the fact that, you know, essentially the, the billionaire class um, are are not benefiting from this war with Ukraine, right? They're directly being hurt by it. So I think that, it, that time will tell, um, but I do think it's a powerful way of going after very influential people, whether they're influential with Putin or not, they're certainly influential with the Russian economy as a whole. And I think that can make a difference. Christy, next up, we have an article in Risk and Compliance Platform Europe. Uh, as its title suggests, it focuses on compliance issues um, more about Europe than in the EU than the U.S. But Mark Peeth, the uh, president of the Basel Institute of Governance, raises some questions or rather concerns on Switzerland's approach. What did you see in that article? Well, it was so interesting because I started to look at dates, right? Because <laughs> it's written on March 1st, which I'm imagining it was written a couple of days before that and posted on March 1st because March 1st is the day that Switzerland switched its sides, right? So the article is him complaining really robustly about Switzerland's take that it was still going to just try to be neutral. And his response was that they are risking becoming a global pariah by continuing to do business with the Russian oligarchs. Um, He even floated the idea that Swiss banks could be sanctioned themselves for aiding and abetting money laundering and sanctions evasion, which I found pretty interesting. Um, And he finished his article quoting the former U.S. Undersecretary of Commerce talking about Switzerland's role in World War II, and he said... 
quote, neutrality collided with morality, too often being neutral provided a pretext for avoiding moral considerations, unquote. Um, and it appears that the Swiss government ultimately agreed with Mr. Peeth. Um, as the same day it was published, like I said, Switzerland announced that it would adopt all the sanctions that the European Union imposed on the Russians, the, the specific Russian people and companies, and freeze their assets to punish the invasion of Ukraine closed its airspace to flights from Russia, imposed entry bans against a number of individuals who have a connection to Switzerland uh, and are close to the Russian president. So I think it's pretty extraordinary um, to see the switch that took place in Switzerland uh, with respect to the aggression. Um, it may have helped that thousands of protesters took to the street in Bern prior to the reversal in solidarity with the Ukrainian people. Um, and, but it is important to note that Switzerland said, Switzerland's president said that this action does not portend a reversal of its commitment to neutrality in the future. But for now, in my opinion, Switzerland is doing what's 100% the right thing to do. And also, frankly, being on the side of the rest of the world seems like a good choice. What do you think? I wholeheartedly agree. agree and um, I don't want to say this is extraordinary, but it's the first time Switzerland has done this. And that may make it extraordinary in, in and of itself. But it's a huge blow to Russia, the Russian economy, uh, Russian oligarchs. I'm sure Putin has money in uh, some Swiss bank accounts squirreled away somewhere. So um, having Switzerland as a part of the sanctions, I think, is a very uh, important and form formidable addition to the overall economic sanctions uh, and financial sector sanctions that the U.S. has uh uh, started to bring, and perhaps it's just a, a coincidence of the dates that uh, Mr. Peeth didn't know the Swiss were about to change. But I think uh, they're, uh, and now I've talked myself into thinking that it is extraordinary. So um, uh, I, 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 as you welcome them as a part of the world order at this point against uh, Russia, and I, I think this one's going to hurt. I think yeah. when Switzerland does something like this, it really could uh, swing things in a, in a different direction. Um, next up, we have an article from our good friend and colleague, Mike Volkoff. And uh, if you're getting questions about sanctions, I hope you're referring them over to Mike, because that's one of his bailiwicks, is economic sanctions. And he posted this on uh, Wednesday, uh, March 2nd, Texas Independence Day, for those of you who are not from the great state of Texas. Um, and he listed uh, some things that came up uh, this week, later this week, including uh, expansion of sanctions from Russia to Belarus because Belarus is part of the invading force, sanctions against Russian defense entities, export controls targeting refineries, uh, targeting uh, entities which support the Russian military, and then the banning of aircraft. Um, and the thing that uh, I'm sure you are having to counsel your clients on, Christy, is these are changing almost daily now. And, mm -hmm. and if the Trump administration prepared us, the trade compliance people for anything, it's things can change from the morning to the afternoon. And that's kind of what we're seeing now. And just as you suggested, I'm trying to send as many people as I can uh, I still do a little contract work for petrochemical plants in the Texas Gulf Coast, and and I had to call them up and say, okay, we need a list of clients. Start getting me a list, uh, just because you don't know. And so um, these expanded sanctions, and I mean, Biden been clear in the State of the Union that the sanctions will continue to expand and they will continue to become more robust. And 
obviously being from Texas, I'm very cognizant of the energy industry. Um, almost no, every energy company I've ever worked for is out either as outside counsel or in-house did business in Russia, mm-hmm. did business with Russian entities. And so that's going to be a huge amount of work and you have to prepare for that. Um, but there may be an opportunity if uh, not only is Russia the second largest energy producer in the world behind Saudi Arabia, but they supply 40% of the energy to the EU. Well, somebody's got to supply it. And I don't know why we can't. There's a big energy practice in Southern California. So uh, Harry Sinclair was onto something way back then. And uh, there's still a lot of energy in California that's being produced too. So um, I guess in addition to what you started with, Christy, of getting your clients to economic sanctions experts and trade compliance experts is it's changing literally daily. We're going to have a quick word from our sponsor, and we'll be right back with more this week in FCPA. It is almost impossible to imagine being a, uh, a sanctions attorney right now and sleeping. The idea that the minute you wake up again, it's going to have changed. Um, I think that this is one of we have we've I've worked with some companies, including some really big ones, that don't have sanctions screening software. If you can possibly believe it, but people don't believe just how far behind many very large companies are occasionally. And this, if 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 there was ever a time to say no, really, we need this continuous monitoring. It's right now. Um, so if you don't have that uh, tool at your disposal, go call your CEO now and say we really need it. We really really do because that's the only way to manage this. There's no possible way any one human can manage this, especially as the lists of individuals and companies change rapidly. It's just going to be a necessary 100%. So, Christy, now we're to the article that uh, I asked you to read and and because uh, I really wanted your take. It was a really interesting article on economic sanctions and corporate governance. What did you see in this piece from yeah. the uh, Harvard Forum on Corporate Law? Yes, and I'm, I'm, I'm very interested in your perspective on this because this is definitely – uh, the the way that the that the writer who is uh, Martin Gelter of Fordham University talks about it is is a really complex topic and one I'd like you to let me know what you think about it. So he notes that in the past decades, participants in corporate law and corporate governance related uh, academic debates have generally been skeptical of policies um, implementing economic nationalism or protectionism. And he argues that actually corporate governance policies intended to serve a particular country's interests may not actually be bad, or at least as bad as we think. Um, so he starts saying that in the uh, 1990s and 2000s, scholars argued uh, whether and to what extent corporate governance laws and practices would do what, what he called convergence. So converge into a single model, with the endpoint being one that favors all investors collectively rather than, say, controlling shareholders or the government or employees. Um, But that nationalism and protectionism that favors local actors um, have become more trendy, as it were. He actually uses the word trend. Um, And it posits that the COVID-19 pandemic continues uh, the resurgence of these protectionist policies that began with the uh, 2008-9 financial crisis. Um, he talks about instruments such as minority ownership, loyalty shares, the ability for firms to defend against hostile takeovers, 
Um, and basically says that, you know, some of this stuff is good. Like politicians are responsible for the well-being of their constituents. And some of these policies are legitimate. They benefit their constituencies. Um, and that, you know, even strong supporters of globalization and corporate governance need to acknowledge the risk of backlash um, that happens if there is no protection to your own people. So what an interesting sort of academic distinction, just nationalism, protectionism versus convergence. Tom, make this English for people and what do you think actually is important here and what your takeaways are? So when I read this, I thought it was a different discussion of the problem of supply chains, really, uh, because I saw this as um, you know, if we buy American, we're going to be more resilient in our supply chain from disruptions overseas. So, um, uh, although I certainly acknowledge his interesting arguments, uh, protectionism and nationalism to me really revolves around what's the best thing for our business. If you want to go down the political path, I would go back to NAFTA and the backlash that came from NAFTA mm. um, about, I mean, Ross Perot said the giant sucking sound you hear will be American jobs going to Mexico. Well, that didn't turn out to be correct. And indeed, after we cut off uh, migration from Mexico, uh, all of a sudden we have a labor shortage in the United States. Go figure. Um, but in terms of protectionism and nationalism, uh, when Joe Biden gets up, as he did in the State of the Union, and says, you know, we're going to buy American, that is actually a, a business way of looking at your supply chain. And then um, COVID drove that home for many companies. Mm -hmm. In the supply chain world, up until COVID, it was a concept called just-in-time where you outsourced as much as you could of your uh materials to suppliers uh, who were there at your beck and call. Well, when they couldn't be there at your beck and call uh, because they couldn't get the materials to the United States, uh, everything from automobiles to, uh, I mean, you just experienced this in renovating your home in Los Angeles, wood. Uh, yeah. uh, we are now 12 weeks behind on a set of windows for our house. Um, couldn't get a microwave. Everything couldn't get a stainless steel microwave. <laughs> There, there you go. There you go. And so all of these things, uh, microchips, everything slowed down. And so if you want to have uh, a better resource for your supply chain, you have it locally. Now, that may be more inefficient, and it may cost you more, but that's the trade-off so that you're assured. But uh, the article also uh, touched on a couple of other points. Uh, you know, we have CFIUS reviews now of uh, acquisitions in the United States. And... Um, in Texas, Pemex in January closed on the purchase of one of the largest petrochemical refineries on the Texas Gulf Coast from Shell. And that had to go through CFIUS review. And I and others who were much more vociferous than me said, why do we want to have a national oil company who's not U.S. Mm. running the biggest refinery on the Texas Gulf Coast? Oh, and guess what? It's one of the most corrupt companies there is. And um, pacifist reviews, so I guess those questions got answered if they were ever raised. So I think he's on to something. I would look at it, though, also, in addition to simply supply chain, Chrissy, you know, even the um, business roundtable on their 
a statement on the purpose of a corporation said there are multiple stakeholders. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they identified five different stakeholders. And so you could try to satisfy some or all of those stakeholders simply beyond just the shareholders and profit-driven. So uh, I think it's looking at things that, frankly, you and I talk about literally on a daily basis with our clients, um, whether that be on the sales side and or whether that be on the supply chain side. He has put a different spin on it, and I think it's it's a valuable spin to think about. But the point I got out of it was, Hey, Mr. and Mrs. Board of Director, you need to start thinking about this. And if you haven't thought about it in the past, you better start thinking about it now. Mm. So uh, I don't know if I answered your question or not. I I didn't see much of that in there. So I think you have a much better uh, take on it, frankly, than the the very kind of high-level geopolitical going after it from a very intellectual perspective. I think you you had the ability to bring that down to earth and that that's a much more valuable take than than the way he wrote it, frankly. Christy, our next article uh, is not focused on, and it's the only article, blog post, that's not, uh, not focused specifically on the Ukrainian crisis. It comes to us from New York University's Compliance and Enforcement uh, blog, where we had lawyers from, um, I believe, uh, Sullivan and Cromwell wrote about the uh, fine art and high-value art market under the anti-money laundering law of 2020. But the reason I uh, included it is along the lines of our, dis- of our discussion about the oligarchs. Uh, there's a lot of dirty money in art, uh, high-value art. It's a great way to launder money. Up until the AML of 2020, um, we had not really, or money laundering, and not really looked at that, um, that's really separate and apart from things like uh, returning uh, artwork that was stolen during World War II um, and returned to, to Jewish owners. But uh, I wanted people to think about different types of investments that might cause uh, not simply money laundering, but some of the Russian money may be hidden in these. And um, although it's not art, I don't know, maybe you consider it art, the Chelsea football team. Rowan Abramovich, oh, yeah, Abramovich right. yeah. owns Chelsea. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm not sure who your team is. I'm, I'm a Liverpool guy, but Arsenal, Chelsea has been incredibly London, obviously. <laughs> okay, okay. Go Gunners. Um, 20 years of ownership, and he's won both uh, Premier League titles. He's won European titles, or Chelsea, I should say. And um, he's been the owner, and I think he's uh, generally been seen as a very positive owner. He's now got that team up for sale. Whether it has to go to fire sale price, I don't know. My question is, well, so what if he sells it? Aren't they just going to, you know, freeze the money? But um, so there's lots of different ways to launder money. I mean, in Texas, we had that done with uh, uh, racehorses. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so I really wanted uh, the compliance professionals to, to think about, are there any other types of assets your company has or uh trades in that might come under some of these sanctions simply beyond um, the traditional business ones. So uh, I think they're going to crack down on that. And I bet there's a bunch of Russian money in the high value art. And that's really what I wanted to try to convey to our colleagues with that article. Yeah, no, absolutely. Our concluding uh, article is on one other area that we have not touched on, but we must which is the crisis in cybersecurity. Jonathan Armstrong wrote a uh, client alert in quarterly compliance. What did you see in that article? 
Um, I first of all, I just found it really entertaining to read. Um, so he's talking about um, it, it begins with the rundown of the state actors, right? Um, those in Russia with the disinformation campaigns discusses the actions of various ransomware gangs and state-owned actors and state in cyber warfare. Um, my personal favorite, he talked about what the anonymous group had done in uh, Russia. They claimed to have attacked the Russian TV stations, changing the broadcast to a show of Ukrainian folk songs that moved into a documentary uh, telling Russian viewers the true nature of, of Putin's attacks. Um, so there's some great stuff in there. But then he basically goes into reminding readers that chaos uh, creates opportunity particularly for data breaches, ransomware. Uh, it goes into a deep discussion of why insurance usually excludes coverage for acts of war or things relating to war and uh, points out that many insurers really aren't going to cover data breaches or ransomware attacks, especially at this time. Um, that uh, really the most interesting thing I'd never thought of before was uh, he posits that essentially paying ransomware via cryptocurrency into illegal exchanges or those which um, have ultimate beneficial owners that are sanctioned parties could in and of itself be a sanctions violation, which which is a pretty interesting thing to think through. Um, and then it closes with some really practical advice, right? Review your company's insurance policy to understand the parameters uh, where you can make claims for ransomware, other types of attacks, uh, paying ransoms out, um, and making sure your systems have security patches installed, give training, data protection, data privacy, et cetera, in times of war and peace. So I thought it was, it was just really a very interesting take on it. Um, what did you think, Tom? Uh, yes to all the above. Uh, that's one of the things I feared the most from this invasion because I thought Putin would unleash the cyber attacks on the United States. Uh, we haven't seen that yet, or at least it hasn't been publicized. I think every company, literally from the board of directors down to the executive assistant, needs to uh, be refreshed and retrained on stopping the basic cyber attacks. Uh, that's an interesting angle um, on the war exclusion. Mm -hmm. uh, I've done a lot of insurance defense work, and I've never had to deal with a war exclusion. Uh, but that's absolutely right. If an attack happens now, you may not have coverage for it. So uh, you might want to call your broker and, and uh, see if you can get some clarity around that. So, uh, Christy, with that, we are now to some podcasts that went up this week. And uh, it's a new month, so I have a new uh, person on the, the Compliance Life. I have Audrey Harris. She's a managing director at Affiliated Monitors, and she's had one of the most interesting careers in compliance that I've come across. She literally started at the turn of the century, um, not in compliance, but doing FCPA investigations in private practice. From there, she moved into the CCO chair at BHP Billiton, uh, which uh, I think everyone knows had their own uh, FCPA journeys. Then she went into private practice, this time focusing on compliance as opposed to FCPA investigations. And now she's doing monitor work at uh, affiliated monitors. It was a, a fun uh, uh, series, and part one premiered this week. We'll go out every Tuesday over the next three weeks. Now it's a four-week series. Uh, once again, I had a two-part series with trade compliance guru Matt Silverman. On uh, We did one before the invasion on possible Russian sanctions. We did a second on corporate responses you need to make. Uh, so check those out. Matt is a great resource in the trade compliance space. Uh, a good friend of mine, Lauren Steffi, who's been a business journalist for uh, 
long time and has written on energy. We took a look at energy issues and the fallout from the Russian invasion uh, this week on greetings and felicitations. Matt Kelly and I took a deep dive into the compliance weeds uh, about the Russian invasion on compliance into the weeds. And then if you've never listened to the Compliance Kitchen, I would urge you to do so. Sylvia Sermon does a daily podcast on trade compliance issues, and she devoted the entire week to Russian trade sanctions and economic sanction issues. Uh, The thing about the Compliance Kitchen, it's three minutes. It's one topic that she hits in a way that you'll be able to understand. Uh, So it comes out every day at um, 1 p.m. Sylvia does a great job. So check out uh, Sylvia. And then, of course, Texas Independence Day uh, was Wednesday. And then Sunday is the anniversary of the Alamo. So I had to do another podcast uh, with Don Frazier, the executive director of the Texas Institute at Shriner University, where we talk about the Texas War for Independence, the Texas Revolution, and the fall of the Alamo. So check all of those out. Uh, Christy, I'm not sure you have talked about on this podcast some of the recent uh, innovations and development from Spark Consulting. Uh, Can you tell us uh, what you have put out literally in the past six months or so? Um, I mean, the coolest thing that we've done, uh, it's, it's a little bit more than six months now, but uh, Compliance Competitor, our business simulation training game, it's just been catching fire. It won the uh, Great Women in Compliance Innovation Award. Um, it's just, it's based on uh, adult learning best uh, techniques can be facilitated with one of us or in-house people. Um, and it's just been incredible. We hired Ellen Hunt, um, who is the former you know, chief compliance officer, AARP, one world's most ethical company repeatedly. Um, and she's been a tremendous addition to our uh, Spark Compliance family. So uh, we had 40% growth last year, and I'm very proud of uh, where we're going now. Uh, and also, you've hinted at it, but you and Jonathan have relocated to Los Angeles. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, my uh, my family is, uh, I grew up in Orange County. Um, I went to UCLA. I went to Loyola Law School, moved to London in 2011. Um, and with COVID, just recognized that the time to be close to family was now. And then especially I've got a niece and nephew that are six and 10 now and uh, realized if we didn't really grow those relationships now, we wouldn't have them later. So it's been an incredible journey to get back to California. And also, um, it confuses me when I was in New York this week and it was cold. So I'm very pleased to be in the endless summer, the land of endless summer again. I really love it. <laughs> a few words about house renovation. Uh, DIY? (laughs) Maddening. Um, Amazing, fantastic, horrifying, terrible. Um, I don't recommend working full-time, owning a company, and then trying to do lay floors at night. It's kind of difficult, but um, it's been the most fascinating thing. We literally took out 1.2 tons of teal carpet from the house, um, if you could possibly imagine just how much that is, and we pulled it all up ourselves. So it's been a, quite a journey, but it's, it's getting there. I'm, I'm starting to be really excited about how the house looks now. Well, thank you, and thank you for sharing that journey on social media. I enjoyed following your exports and got to say, I'm glad it's not me. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, Chrissy, if uh, any of our listeners wanted more information about uh, yourself or Spark, what would be the best way for them to find out? Sure. Information about uh, me, my blog, my speaking, all that good stuff is at compliancechristy, K-R-I-S-T-Y.com. And Spark Compliance is sparkcompliance.com. We'd love to hear from you. So, Christy, thanks again for pinch hitting for Jay. It's always a ton of fun to catch up with you, and um, I look forward to doing this again. Thanks, Tom. Take care. Bye. 
This is Tom Fox again. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of This Week in FCPA. I hope you'll check out my recent podcast series, The Science of Star Wars. If you love Star Wars or even are mildly interested, I have a great five-part series where I speak to uh, academically trained astrophysicist Dr. Ben Lockwin on issues such as traveling through hyperspace, fighting with lightsabers, the Death Star, robots and cyborgs, and mechanical prosthetics. It's a lot of fun. Learn some science and get to talk about Star Wars. Please check it out. The podcast series is Greeting Felicitations and it's on the Compliance Podcast Network. We hope you will join Jay and I next week for another episode of This Week in FCPA. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.